Uh, while we're sitting down, we're going to let the kids uh, slip out. So if you're a kiddo that wants to head to Sunday school, there you go. This is your opportunity. Sunday school teachers might be good if you left too. I'll just send the kids out. Yeah, you kids just figure it out out there. Have a good time. There they go. <laughs> After Kevin's sharing, I was going to pray for all the stuff piled up at his house until he threw his wife under the bus. I'm going to pray for something different now. <laughs> Maybe that he lives through the day. Could happen. Kevin, Kevin. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Wow. Memorial Day, and people are in church. Impressive. You know, God is good, and we're going to continue in our, ser- in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in this little series of six sermonettes that Jesus is giving to the, uh, to the folks there. Uh, and we're dealing with this whole concept of God's kingdom, this new kingdom that's coming into being, and it's completely flipping people out. And today is no exception. Jesus is going to take what they thought was their spiritual reality, and he's going to twist it and shake it up and flip it upside down. And I think he's going to do that for us as well. As a matter of fact, this particular passage is actually one of the pivotal passages in the faith, and yet people have struggled with it because they're just not sure what to do with it. And you'll you'll see that as we we get into it. But before we do that, uh, when you hear the word gracious, there it goes. Catch up with me, Chris. Come on, here we we go. When you hear the word gracious, what comes to mind? Take like 10 10 seconds. What comes to mind when you hear the word gracious? No, no, don't say it out loud. Keep it in. Okay, now now that you've thought about it for a couple of seconds, share with the person next to you what came to mind first, first off. Go ahead, tell them. go. All right. Come on back. You know, it's like opening the barn door and a bunch of chickens. You let one out and the rest want to run out too. How many of you thought of a person? How many thought of an event that you've experienced? Nobody. How many just thought of kind of like some, that's somebody else? Did, did nobody think of themselves like, I'm a gracious person? Anybody? Nobody? You know what? Those are, those are the only answers I had. I'm not sure where you landed on, in terms of that. When, when I hear the word gracious, I think of my little sweet mom uh, who's, who's been gone for almost a decade now. She was absolutely one of the most gracious people. She was so gracious that when we took a vacation and met her in San Diego and had some friends join us there, at the end of that vacation, they said, we want your mom to be our mom. We want her to be our mom because she was that warm, open, gracious, super friendly. In the days when you could go to the gates and greet people, anybody remember those days? Yeah? We always knew when my mom was coming off the plane, one, you could hear her coming up the concourse, the tunnel, 
but she was never alone. She had like four or five people around her, and she's like, you know, call me, getting their, getting their phone numbers, and just the friendliest, and she was going to call them, and she was going to talk with them. She was an amazing person, just an amazingly gracious person. I want you to file away in your mind the idea of graciousness. We're going to come back to it later this morning. Jeffrey Zaslow, anybody recognize that name? Jeffrey Zaslow? Nobody? Well, you should check him out. He was an author, Wall Street Journal columnist, wrote a whole bunch of human interest stories. Sully Sullenberger, he wrote his story. Uh, the guy who gave the last lecture of his life before he died from cancer wrote his story. He was a human interest guy, loved those kinds of stories. He was sadly killed in a car accident in 2012. But he, before that, he tells this very interesting story about his father. These are his words, uh, writing in a book he wrote called Tell Me All About It. He says this. He says, you're, and by the way, if you're a parent or a coach or a teacher or a person who hangs around with kids, or maybe you're one of these kids, I think you might connect with this. It kind of gripped me for a whole bunch of different reasons. But he says this. Years ago, my father coached a team of eight-year-olds. Get that in your mind. <laughs> I, I once taught a group of six-year-olds swimming, and we're going to put it in the same category. My father had very few excellent players, and there were a couple who actually didn't even understand the game. They just were there for the fun of it. His team did not win a single game all season. But in the last inning of the last game, his team was down by only one run. He could see victory on the horizon. This was it, he thought. They would finally get a win. Unfortunately, the boy who came up to bat was a boy who had never hit the ball. He had never caught the ball. He was just actually very seldom in the game. And with two outs, it was his turn to bat. Shock of shocks, he managed to hit the ball and got to first base. The next batter was the team slugger. And he said, I looked at the look on my father's face and he was beaming. <laughs> Victory is in sight. They might actually win a game at the end of the season. And sure enough, the pitch came the slugger connected, and a win was in the bag. Unfortunately, the little boy who had hit the single, who was on his way to second, saw the ball coming towards him. <laughs> and he miraculously reached out and caught the ball as it passed him. <laughs> Being unsure of the rules of baseball, he didn't realize that's an out. But not just an out, that was the end of the game. The team had lost. It was the final score, down by one. My father quickly turned to the team in the dugout and said, cheer for so-and-so. And they all poured out of the dugout, cheering for him. And the little boy beamed, because it never occurred to him that he had lost the game. <laughs> all he knew was he had hit the ball, and he had caught the ball <laughs> for the first time in his life and the first time ever in a, in a game. Weeks later, his parents wrote a letter to my father thanking him, saying, you know, he had never even gotten in a game before this whole season. 
first time he had actually gotten in the game. We never told the boy what happened. We didn't want to ruin it for him. And Jeffrey writes, to this day, I'm proud of what my father did. What did he do? What did he not do? Well, think about that as we get into this passage, this continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. If you want, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Remember, one of the pivots for this entire series is found in Matthew 5.17, where Jesus said to the hearers gathered around for this massive sermon, he says, now don't think that I came to abolish the law. And let's be careful, keep that in our minds. Jesus is not throwing the law away. But rather, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I came not to abolish, but to, remember, to fulfill. In other words, let me show you what God's true heart is on the law. I know it has a purpose in your life, but you know, there's a heart of God behind the law, and I want you to see it. And that's going to, he's going to continue that thought as he digs into the intent of what this is all about. Now, unfortunately for the hearers, these things are shocking to, to them, and I think they're still shocking to us today. If you remember, Chris, several weeks ago, reminded us that the righteousness that we have, it doesn't flow out of what we do. It flows out of who we are in the relationship with the one who can make us righteous. And this upside-down system that Jesus is talking about flies completely in the face, in most cases, of what we think we know and what we think we should do. As a matter of fact, we're going to see later a passage that confronts the wisdom of the world and basically turns that upside down, and they're all interconnected with these concepts and these sermons as well. And I think that's because we focus on the wrong things. What do we focus on? We focus on the stuff that we can do or that we think we have some kind of control over. I can control this, and therefore, this will make me fill in the blank, right before God, righteous, upright. If I just do these things, follow this system. But if you recall what Chris said, intimacy comes before ministry. It is we are pushing against the pull to do the right thing. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean we don't do the right thing, but we do it for the right reasons, and the reason is about relationship. So here we go. This is the fifth of these little six sermons that Jesus gives, beginning in verse 38 of chapter 5. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to them as well. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Lord, these are really hard words. And we're going to just tell you right now, we, we're struggling. We're not even sure what to do with these. But we know that you gave them to those people and to us as well to stir us and invigorate us and turn us towards the heart of the Father. And that's my prayer this morning for each one of us, that our hearts would be open to what your heart is and that you would teach us and empower us to do the things that will express your heart. Lord, we want deep relationship with you. We hunger for it. We thirst for it. 
And now would you take your word and would you cultivate it in each of our hearts and cause it to come to fruition for your kingdom's sake, for the name of Jesus. It's in his name we ask these things. Thank you so much. Amen? Amen. Amen. So here we go. What in the world is he talking about? Well, I'm going to just sum up this whole section. Here it is. If you're in God's kingdom, stuff works differently. Period. Whatever you think it is, it's not that. It's this thing over here. And it's the thing that we hate to look at because if we look at it, when we realize what it is, we realize we can't do it. We can't do these things. We read these birds and we go, no, I don't think so. That's not going to happen. Because in our power, in our flesh, in our own strength, we can't do this. We can't sustain it. It's interesting, Eugene Peterson in the message, which I know it's not a Bible translation, it's a whatever it is, verse, verse 48, which we'll get to several weeks from now. He says this in the message. He says, in a word, let me tell you what this is all about. Grow up. In God's kingdom, you belong to him. Now live like it. Act like it. Live out your identity. Live generously and graciously towards others just the way God lives towards you. Grow up. Woo! One of my father's favorite phrases. Grow up. Wake up. Figure it out. How we live matters, and yet sometimes I think we think it doesn't matter, but it does matter, and in God's kingdom, the way we live is incredibly important in terms of expressing the kingdom to the world around us. So here comes Jesus. He's preaching these sermons, and he gets to these passages, and people are shocked when they hear these things. Now, amazingly for us, not only were the first century hearers shocked, we're kind of shocked too. We sort of read this, and we sort of bring it into our historic context, and we go, what in the heck is he talking about? Now, how can you do this? And this is crazy talk. But it's not crazy talk because Jesus is making a strong point and he wants us to understand that God's intent is way deeper than we thought it was. I, I love the Narnia books because occasionally you'll bump into this, and C.S. Lewis really probes this, where they'll bump into something, and Aslan will say, no, you think it's this way. That's not even close. It's way deeper than you think. And he uses some kind of interesting terms, the deeper magic that occurs below the surface. I mean, you know, you realize God's at work all the time. And yet, do we live like that? Well, we'll probe that question in a moment. So here we go. Jesus says these three things. Don't fight back. If somebody wants your stuff, give it to them. And if you have to go the distance, go extra. As a matter of fact, we love to banter that, that phrase, right, right? They really went the extra mile. Do we really go the extra mile? In most cases, probably not. So Jesus throws out these very common things to us today, but to these folks, they're like, what is he talking about? Are you crazy? You're telling me to give all my stuff away? You're telling me to like get beat up? You're telling me to give in to crazy requests? Is that what you're saying? And the answer is yes and no. Let's get some context here. First off, the first century hearers who heard this message, where were they living? Where were they living? Yeah. But tell me about the historic context. They weren't just living in America where it's the land of the free, home of the brave. They were living in a nation completely oppressed by another country 
whose soldiers lived there, and they could make you do anything that they wanted, and you couldn't say anything about it. And their judicial system was a very low step down because the Roman judicial system ruled over all, but it was only for the Romans. If you were a Roman, too bad. You're out of luck. So suddenly, they're in the system which is incredibly partial to certain people and does, give, does not even give justice to others. And so they read these things, and they go, you've got to be kidding me. Now, curiously enough, Jesus opens with a phrase that was very familiar to every Jewish hearer, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. They knew this from, Le- from Leviticus 22 and 24. That was the gold standard. And by the way, they eventually tried to live like that, where if you hurt me in this way, I would hurt you in that way. It Was that God's heart there? Was his heart to say, if you b- knock my tooth out, I'm going to pull yours out? If you poke my eye out, I'm going to take your eye? Was that his intent? And the answer is no, of course not. That'd be silly. There'd be a lot of blind people walking around. There'd be a lot of toothless people walking around. What was the intent here? Well, the intent was this was the foundation of the laws of Israel. It is equitable justice. If something is of this nature, the justice must be similar. And the more serious, the more serious the outcome would, would be. But on the other hand, if it's just a minor offense, there's an easy fix to it. But the nation had gravitated towards this highly literalized view of this, these entire passages, and they tried to actually make them work. But, you know, they didn't work because that wasn't the heart of God on this. And they struggled with it. And so along comes Jesus, and he says these things, and he said, you've heard this said. And they went, oh, yeah, we've heard that said over and over and over. Then he says these three shocking things. And by the way, they were common occurrences to them. We read them and go, what is he talking about? To the Jewish listener, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Because each of these three examples were common around them. And yet he says, instead of get your own way and get retribution and seek justice, he says exactly the opposite and shocks them. And I'm sure they were stunned when they heard this. As a matter of fact, the disciples were probably like, uh-oh, What's, what wagon have we hooked our, our wagon to? Like, where are we going with this? They were probably giving Jesus the hairy eyeball from the back. You've, you've seen that? Mm-hmm. So here we have these three situations. And, you know, really what Jesus is doing is what he's done in a lot of the elements of the Sermon on the Mount. He's using hyperbole and rhetorical exaggeration to make a point that's so shocking. People are like, ah, what do you mean? And that's the question. What do you mean here? What's really going on here? And he's saying some extravagant things because if people were actually tried to live by this, every believer would be penniless and naked and probably have no teeth. Is that what Jesus is saying? I want you to live a life with no clothes and no teeth and walking around wondering what's, what's going to happen next. No, of course not. That's crazy. But he is going to make some points that are going to be challenging to the, us as much as it was to them. So let's take a look at his three points. Number, number one, what is he saying here in the beginning? Justice is not about you. Who controls justice? Us? No. We know the scriptures are quite clear. Who holds judgment in his hand? God holds judgment. The judgment is in his hand. It's not about our honor, our dignity, our rights. These are hard words for we living in America because we think these are true. But he says in verse 38, you've heard these things said, but I say to you, don't resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him as well. Are we talking about kind of basic boxing technique here? Is this fisticuffs? Is, is that what he's talking about? No. What was a slap on the cheek? What, what is a slap on the cheek if you get a slap? This, this really hasn't changed in thousands of years. 
if you get a slap on the cheek, what's someone saying? It's an insult. That's right. For, for, for those of you thinking, well, I think it's kind of a sign of affection, isn't it? No. <laughs> a slap on the cheek is like the old take my glove off. <laughs> it's like a challenge. It's an insult. It's a, an affront to who you are, to your dignity. You know what Jesus is saying? If someone affronts your dignity, lay it down. Because we don't care about that anyway. It's not about your dignity. It's not about your honor. Because what is it about us when we get offended? What do we want to do? We bristle. We want to fight back. We want to go, hey, well, well, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me explain. Do you know who you're talking to? Do you understand who I am? Jesus is saying, put it all down. As a matter of fact, put it down to the point where you could turn your cheek and go, you can slap this one too. Because I'm not even worried about my dignity. My dignity is found where? In Christ. It's that great hymn, in Christ alone. In Christ alone. Now, you know, I I love the fact that we've got people graduating and all this stuff, because it's cool. It's cool to have degrees and all those things. I live in the world of PhDs. They're all around me. It is the place where people strut their stuff. And it's always comical to me. There are some very godly people I know. I didn't even know they had doctorates until years later because they never said anything about it. But in the world where I live, it's like, oh, hi, uh, I'm Jerry. Well, I would be a doctor so-and-so. And I get it. You know, you spend a lot of money. You put a lot of time in. It's a big deal. But is that who you are? I was tempted to name one of our kids their middle name doctor. Just, just so they could have the benefit of that. <laughs> you know? Without any embarrassment. But you know, the truth of the matter is, isn't that, what is that about when we trot that out in front? What's that about? Pride. Look, I'm something special. Oh, by the way, doctors are special. I, I'm not saying you're not, but really? Is, do those things, do they make us who we are? They don't. They don't, we don't carry them into the, into the kingdom with us. As a matter of fact, what does Paul come along and say to the church? He says, when you're together, you should consider each person, what? More important than yourself. Lay it down. Put it aside. Don't be worried about insults. And Jesus, of course, modeled this whole thing. When they insulted him, what did he do? He said nothing. He didn't fight back. He let it roll over him because he knew that his value was not tied to those things. So Jesus is not saying, hey, get out there and just get yourself beat up constantly. He's not saying that. He's saying if someone insults you, so what? Let it roll off you. It's not that big a deal because your value is somewhere deeper than this. Your value was found in God, in him. This is not about equitability. He's saying take the insult because your honor is embedded in Jesus. Take it. Who cares? We have value greater than these things. Wouldn't it be great if we lived in a time where instead of being offended by insult, we could press through it and do something totally counterintuitive? Instead of fighting back and pushing back, we actually would roll with it and just not make a big to-do about it. What impact would that have, particularly when others around us are watching those things happen? We don't strike back at the offender, but rather we hold back and we extend to them mercy or grace. So justice is not about us. 
It's not about our dignity, our power, our authority, our value, because our value is embedded in Christ. And we can lay all that other stuff down. Now, that's not to say that it's, there are times when we don't say I'm an important person because, look, you know, God has done these things. But you know what? It still belongs to him. We'll see that in a moment. The second thing he does in verse 40, he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And we're thinking, what, what the heck is that about? Do people take you to court for your shirt? Is that the way that works? And the answer was, in most of the population at that time, the, their clothing, that was it. They didn't have, like, closets of clothes. They had their clothes. And to the very poor, their cloak was everything. It was their bedding. It was their sunscreen. It was the protection against rain and wind and all those things. It wasn't Gore-Tex. It's all they had. That was it. Now, listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if someone wants to sue you for your shirt, which, of course, was stupid. No one was suing you for your shirt. He's using hyperbole, like, you want to hear something really crazy? Somebody's going to sue you for party for your underwear. Give them the most important thing you have, which is your cloak. Give that to them, too. And the, the poor in the audience heard this and went, are, are you out of your mind? That's the most important thing I have. That's the thing of value. That's all I got. And you know what he's saying? Give it up. Nothing you have, even the most important thing that you have in your world, compares to the kingdom of God. And if it were to come to that where someone wanted to sue you for the silliest things, he's saying, give it up, because it's not that important. Now, this is foolish because no one was doing that at the time, but the, they understood these frivolous lawsuits to take things away from people and to hold them in, in, um, for loans. And matter of fact, the Old Testament actually prohibited taking a man's cloak as promise for a loan because that had such value to them that that was the wrong thing to do, to take the last thing a person had and hold that as some kind of, um, of promise. So Jesus is basically making this huge statement where people are like, shocked? Really? I'm supposed to give up the things in the world that are most precious to me? And what is he saying? They're not that important. All the, Now think about your, your life, your world. What in your world is like super important to you? What's your stuff? What's the stuff where you are like, oh, I'm not sure I could give that up? Because Jesus is basically saying, it's not that important. If you had to give it up, could you? Could you? I remember sitting in a service one time, and there was a guy sitting next to me, and I'd seen him open his wallet, and I knew he was kind of down and out, and I looked in his wallet, and he had like two bucks. And the plate came around, he reached in his wallet, took out the two bucks, and dropped it in the plate, and I thought, whoa. That guy just like gave everything. One fell swoop, he's walking out of here with nothing in his wallet. So my curiosity got the better of me. And as we're walking, I said, hey, uh, do you have any money? He goes, nope, I just gave it to Jesus. I thought, well, that's kind of dumb. I was a young believer. <laughs> and he said, no, he said, he said, the spirit just moved on me and said, give everything you had. He said, oh, my wallet, all I had was $2, so I gave everything. And I was kind of like, uh, what are you going to do? He goes, well, trust God. And as we got to, and so he kind of split off, and as we got to the door, I saw a man cross paths with him and just like give him a little greeting, choo-choo, and he walked on, and the guy holds his hand up, and there's like a $100 bill. Now, this is not a biblical principle, by, by the way. <laughs> I'm not saying give $2 and get $100. But you know what? The man trusted in God. God moved on him, and he moved on someone else too. Because this man's heart and his trust were in God for the, for, for the little things. And even though you kind of go, two bucks, what's that? That's not even a car wash. It was everything. It was the widow's might, right? And, you know, 
That question should be in all of our hearts. Can I walk away from anything in my little world? Cars, stuff, clothes. I remember Dr. Richard Swenson, who wrote uh, the book Margins and Overload and stuff like that, talked about getting convicted about the stuff in his life. And so his brother, who was a missionary, would come through town about once every two or three years, and he would say, come into my closet, and you can take anything you need, suits or shirts and all that kind of stuff. And he said, it killed him. Because his brother would come in and go, oh, I really like this new suit. I'll take that one. He's like, what would you take the new one for? And he would always take the best stuff in his closet. And he said the first couple of times, it just irked him. He thought, But as time went on, he realized, if I can't give up that stuff, what else can't I give up? And, you know, he said the funny thing was, I was a doctor. I could afford to buy stuff. It wasn't a big deal. It just irked him that he was taking my nice stuff. Do you have nice stuff? Do you have nice stuff that you couldn't part with right now? You couldn't walk, a, walk away from it? Is there stuff that's like it's got a grip on you? Because Jesus is saying, hey, your possessions don't compare to the kingdom of God. And if you need to cut them loose, you need to cut them loose. And if something happens and you, God moves on your heart to walk away from it, can you, can you do it? Or do you, are you attached to it? Are you able to give it, to walk away? Don't cling to the things that will pass away, he's, he's telling us. Because at the end of the day, and the scriptures are quite clear about this, what happens to everything in the world around us? What happens to it? It's that cute little poster you've perhaps seen, seen right? How much of this stuff do you get to take with you? None of it. That's why I like to read Ecclesiastes. All your cool stuff, it goes to somebody else. All that stuff that you did and saved and built, somebody else is going to get it and ruin it. I mean, really, that's the, that's the thesis. Don't overinvest. Now, by the way, that's not to say don't take care of your house and don't put oil in your car and stuff like that. But he's saying keep it in perspective. It's going back to the dust. Don't let it control you. It belongs to God and his kingdom, and we need to be able to release it. And then the third thing is... <laughs> He reminds us that every circumstance that comes into our life is an opportunity to express God's kingdom. Every circumstance, not just the good ones, every. Verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks. Don't turn away from those who want to borrow from you. So here are these people living in the oppressive world of Roman occupation. And this was, an, this was not an uncommon occurrence where an ordinary person would be walking along and a Roman soldier would go, hey, get over here. Do this thing for me. Walk over here. Carry this thing for me. Because they were poorly paid, and yet they had full autonomy and authority to command people in this occupied land. They were just considered to be their servants. They were brutal. They were not apologetic. And they never said thank you at the end. They were rough and tough and like, you're just a, a nothing to me. You're a peon. Pick this up. Carry my stuff. And Jesus comes along. and says, hey, if that happens to you, do it not just with a good attitude. Go the extra mile. Now think about this. This is not go the extra mile for my friends and, you know, I'm going to help them pack their stuff up. I'm going to go the extra mile. No, no. This is go the extra mile with a stinky person with a bad attitude. Go the extra mile with that person. And if somebody asks you for a little something, give them a little something extra. Go the extra mile. Go above and beyond. That expresses the kingdom of God. Do the extra thing. And again, Jesus here using hyperbole because 
these people understood exactly what he was talking about because they had, most of them had probably experienced this where the Romans would abuse them. And Jesus says, use it as an opportunity to show how God has been gracious to you. Remember that little passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago? Who cares if you're nice to the people that are nice to you? So what? Big deal. That's not the kingdom of God. Here's the kingdom of God. Be gracious to your enemy. Be gracious to those who abuse justice, to those who do things unfairly. Be gracious to them. That's the kingdom of God. And the core of this is really, and this is, I think, what this whole passage is about, how do you lead a life of generosity? Because what is generosity? You know what its roots are found in? It's found in being gracious. What is gracious connected to? Grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. God has been gracious to us. We didn't deserve it. Can we be gracious to others? There's a story that Billy Graham tells when he was driving through a little southern town. When he was a young preacher, he was stopped by a policeman charged with speeding. And he said, I was. He admitted his guilt to the policeman. And the officer said, well, since you've admitted your guilt, you need to follow me down to the courthouse where they're going to charge you and you have to pay a fine. He said, okay. So he follows him. And the judge asked him, he said, are you guilty or you're not guilty? And Billy Graham said, I'm guilty. I was speeding, and, and I'm sorry. And the judge said, well, that'll be $10, $1 for every mile over the speed limit. It was at that moment, Billy Graham says, that the judge recognized who he was. And he said, you're Reverend Graham. He goes, I am. Are you guilty? Yes, I am. He says, well, because you violated the law, the penalty must be paid. $10. He said, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay it for you. And he said the judge reached in his pocket, took out his wallet, and took out a $10 bill, attached it to the uh, ticket. And then he said, boom, court's over for the day, and he took Billy Graham out for dinner. <laughs> Billy Graham said, looking back on that situation, he said, that is how God treats a repentant sinner. He pays your bill. And he takes you out to dinner. <laughs> Is that not grace? Is that not graciousness? Is that not the extra mile? And I think that when we begin to realize how gracious God has been to us, we can then do what? Be gracious to others. As a matter of fact, uh, Jesus tells that marvelous little parable about those who forget how gracious their master has been, and they are ungracious to others, and judgment falls on them. It's curious in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is dealing with, lest you think this is just something that happens kind of occasionally, randomly. In the church, Paul is dealing with a situation with the Corinthian church, and he's going to tell us about the opposite of graciousness. In chapter 3, Paul says this, he says, Brothers and sisters, I would love to address you as people who live by the Spirit, but I can't because you're still worldly. You are mere infants in Christ. As a matter of fact, I can't even give you meat. I have to give you milk. For you are not ready for solid food. Indeed, you're still filled with worldliness. Now listen to this. Because in your midst is jealousy and quarreling, or some versions say strife. You're acting like, and some phrases say, 
mere humans. But the point is, you're acting like people that are outside God's kingdom. But you're not. You're in his kingdom, but you're acting badly. What is it about jealousy and strife? Come on. Let's be honest. Why do we get jealous about stuff? Because somebody has it, and we don't. And we begin to think, that's not fair. Why did God give them this cool ministry, this cool thing, this cool, 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 and not me? And it leads to a sense of dissatisfaction, which, of course, leads to strife. Because then we begin to think, and by the way, in this situation, it was interesting. They were saying, hey, I belong to Paul. Oh, yeah, well, uh, I belong to Apollos. Oh, yeah, well, I belong to Cephas. And they had these alliances built up, and it created this entire division in the church. And it goes on in verse 21, and he says, you know what? You're acting like unsaved people. Who are, it's all about you. think it's about you. It's not about you. It's not about your selfishness and your prestige. You've created this strife. Instead of cultivating relationship, he says, listen, no one should be boasting in men to begin with. For all things belong to you, that is, all things from God belong to you. So whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, who cares? You're in Christ and Christ is in God. That's enough. Don't get caught up in this stupid stuff. Don't walk by the world's wisdom. Lest you think this only happens occasionally. In the early 19th century, Charles Spurgeon and a pastor named Joseph Parker both had churches in London. And on one occasion... Pastor Parker commented on the poor condition of the children being admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage connected to the church. That was reported back to Spurgeon that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself even though he hadn't. So in his next sermon, Spurgeon got up and blasted Parker from the pulpit, tore him up. The attack was so brutal they printed it in the newspapers. It became the talk of the town. What a testimony. So the next weekend, people flocked to Parker's church to see what he'd say. Surely he would offer rebuttal. So he got up in the pulpit that Sunday, and he said, I understand that Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. And this was the Sunday, I'm sure, that they would take an offering for their orphanage. So what I'd like us to do is to stop, and we're going to take an offering here for his orphanage. And it says that the people were so shocked and yet delighted that the ushers had to Empty the baskets three times. There was so much money. A week or so later, there was a knock at Parker's study door, and it was Dr. Spurgeon. And he said, uh, came in, he said, you know what, Parker? You have given grace to me. You have not given me what I deserved, but what I needed. Completely changed their relationship. Isn't that going the extra mile? Isn't that doing something so radically different, so counterintuitive? that it expresses the goodness of God. And I would tell you this, that in this passage, Jesus is calling us to counterintuitive choices on our part. If something is unjust, we bring justice. And we step in and we are gracious. If someone offends us, we take it and we lay our pride down. And we let our actions expose not just our hearts, but the heart of God and his grace, his graciousness, and things that he's given to us. Now the question is, can we actually live this way? Can we be gracious in unjust situations? Can you? The answer is no, you can't. Apart from the Holy Spirit, right? Apart from relationship with Christ. That's the only way it happens. We don't do this by our strength. We don't like muster it up and go, I'm going to be gracious today. 
doesn't work that way. How does it work? And again, this is not a formula, but biblically, this is how it works. What's the first thing that happens? I take my pride and my arrogance and my self-interest and my selfishness, and I admit to the Lord, I got all those things. I got them. As a matter of fact, those guys in the Corinthian church, that's me. I'm all about that. I get caught up in that. I like to have attention. I like to have prestige. You know what I'm going to do this morning? I'm going to lay it all down, Jesus, before you, because you're enough. And then we open our hearts to what the Lord would do, and then we act on the opportunities, whether they're good ones or whether they're really stinky ones, and we just are like miffed. And instead of being miffed, we go, you know what? I'm going to express the grace of God in this situation. I'm going to do something totally different and see what happens. And instead of following our common sense, we follow the wisdom of God. Because you know what the wisdom of God reflects? That we are changed people. We don't act like that stuff anymore. We're not the people in 1 Corinthians 3 who are still babies. We're acting like mature believers who lay it down and take up Christ. Again, Eugene Peterson, I love this little closure on this section, verse 48. He says this in the message. He says, and if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. Isn't that great? If someone decides to take advantage of you, don't, don't get flurried about it. It's an opportunity to like do something totally exceptional. Be a servant there. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. Wouldn't it be great to live generously? You know, the scriptures are quite clear. Proverbs eleven twenty five: The generous man will be prosperous. That person who waters will himself be watered. We pour it out. Christ pours it in. So, as the worship team comes up to take us into a time of worship, and a time of communion, a time of breaking of bread, I would just encourage us each to ponder where is graciousness in our lives? Are we just trying to follow our own wisdom on this? Or are we really going to embrace the call to be gracious, filled with grace? Not just towards the people that are nice to us, but what about the ones who aren't? What about the coworker that just takes advantage of you all the time? What could you do to be gracious to them and go the extra mile? What about the person that is your, they said your friend, but they're treating you bad, and you need to stand up for yourself? What could you do that would express the kingdom of God there that would be different from what everyone else would do? Those are the challenges, I think, that are before us. Just want to remind you as you come to communion, this is for those who belong to Jesus or in the kingdom of God, belong to the Lord. Come up, bring somebody with you, break the bread, dip it in the cup, and remember how gracious God has been to you. You were the evil one that he came after. You were the stinky person bringing offense to him, and he didn't push back. We were the ones who by our sin crucified him and yet he took it so that we could be given grace through this wonderful gift amen amen so just just pause for a moment let's enter into worship and then when you're ready the communion tables are open in the back and in the front and the side uh, come up break the bread remember god's goodness and give thanks for it
Amen. Put your hand on your uh, neighbor's shoulders. We're going to pray for each other as we head out. Father, we put our hands on those we love, those we know, those that are our comrades in your kingdom. It is our prayer for each other, Lord, that we will be stirred this morning. We will remember how gracious you have been to us. You sought us when we were far away. You have brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son, the light of your mercy. And now, Father, we pray for each other that we would be bold to express your kingdom in our lives, that we would not follow the wisdom of this world, but we would go in a different direction. We would express your grace in every situation, work, home, just out in a public place, that people would see and would realize how gracious you are. Father, empower us through the Holy Spirit to be your representatives of this upside-down kingdom where people will look and hunger and thirst for you. We ask these things that Jesus would be honored in each of our lives, in the places you've called us and placed us, that your kingdom would be extended into those places. In Jesus' wonderful name, we ask it to his honor. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hey, I think it's lunchtime. This is the time where you get to go and say, what was he talking about anyway? (laughs) (laughs) And you get the check.